Um, we are going to turn to the book of James and delight in the Word of God. Um, in your pews in front of you, there is a pew Bible. Um, if you would like, uh, we would encourage you to open it up to get used to opening the Word. If you're new to the Bible, there's a page number up here. It's 1012, and that will be the page that we are on today in those Bibles. And we're going to now hear the Word of the Lord. This is the book of James, chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Heavenly Father, today there is more grace for us than we know There is more grace for us in Christ than we can fathom. And so we thank you for that grace. Lord, I pray today for clarity of thought, clarity in mind, and charity in our hearts that we would think clearly, we would think well, we would use the brains you have given us, and that our our hearts would, would bend towards you, that we would love you and love others well in light of the glories of the gospel because of what you've done in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word. Spirit, lead us today. Help me to preach and proclaim your word in your power, not my own. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a well-known phrase that I imagine every one of us has heard. And it's a summation or distillation of a quote by Sun Zi. It's this. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. If you're not into ancient Chinese military strategy, quasi-philosophy from the 5th century BC, maybe you've heard it from a happy little band called Rage Against the Machine. Know your enemy. Sun Zi's original quote says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy... For every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. 
If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. This is from the treatise called The Art of War from the 5th century B.C. Now too often we are unaware of our enemy. But just as likely we are often unaware of who we are. Our hearts are a mystery even to us. Maybe you've said something like this before. Why did I do this thing that goes against everything I believe? Why did I say that that nasty little sentence to the person I love, to my wife, or to my kids, or to my best friend? How could I do this thing I said I would never do? Why do I do what I don't want to do? Who am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. The heart is a mystery even unto ourselves. And according to Sun Tzu, when we don't know our enemy and we don't know ourselves, we are in for serious problems, some severe losses in our lives. Now James is no Chinese military strategist from the 5th century BC. Rather, he is a flesh and blood brother of Jesus Christ of 1st century AD Israel. He and Sun Tzu would agree on some things, but would disagree radically on others for sure. But James also knows that we need to know our enemy and we need to know ourselves. But the mind flip with James is the truth that to know yourself is to know your enemy. At least to know one-third of your enemy, and we'll explain that here in a little bit. But our hearts are a civil war of desires. A battleground of competing passions, a confused world of wants, rage within us. There's a whole host of problems here that James will address. But there's more grace than there are troubles. There's good news ahead. So let's catch up real quick. Last week at the end of chapter 3, James addressed the broken wisdom of this world, the selfish ambitions the jealousy, the resentment that cause strife, that cause discord, that make for various DEFCON levels of fighting from snide comments to all-out character assassination all the way to physical violence. James then taught us about being peacemakers, those who harvest, uh, those who sow a harvest of righteousness. And in today's passage, James isn't so much changing the topic as he is diving further in, going deeper into the, the heart of the matter, the root of the problem. And so the heart of the matter is, well, it's the human heart. And so here's the organic logic that we're going to see in the passage today. It's pretty simple. There's three main chunks, um, and this is the logic. He's going to talk about the heart of the problem. So this is the diagnosis, so to speak. Here's the pathology. And then he's going to put forward a call to action, a call to war. And then we're going to look at the gracious solution. So we see a diagnosis, a what to do, and then a what's been done or a what is being done. Heart of the problem, call to action, and the gracious solution. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Verses 1 through 3, the heart of trouble. He says, what causes quarrels? Now, the word here in Greek is polemoi. Um, that's where we get our word polemic, right? As to, to fight. It literally means warring. The, the, what causes our warring with each other? It's a very intense word. What causes our warring? What causes our fights or uh, our sorting, right? That's the word for swords, like swords clashing. What causes our swords 
to clash among each other. Is it not this, that your passions, this is the word for cravings, desires, hedonai, um, it's where we get the word hedonism, right? To do what we want, to do what just feels good pleasure-wise to us. Is it not this, that your cravings, your desires, your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, you war with each other. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your cravings, your desires. James knows that there are divisions and conflicts at work in the early church community. Not just the modern church, by the way. When the church was born, there were human beings in it with warring desires. There's problems even in the early church. So don't think it's just modern issue, right? It's all throughout history. There are sides. There is us versus them happening. There are polarizations. There are factions. There are attacks. There are counterattacks in the church. Worldly wisdom leads to infighting. And that worldly wisdom that we imbibe, that we swim in, goes something like this. Follow your heart. Be true to you. You do you. I mean, pick one of any Disney movies, sorry Disney, and you're going to find this message. Pull up your social media feed and you're going to see these memes all day long. This is the wisdom of the world. Our problem is not simply out there somewhere, right? Our problem is within. Our, our warring passions within our own chests. The constant collision of our disordered desires in our hearts. And our internal disorder and conflicting uh, wants lead to external disorder and conflict. Our unrestrained and unredeemed wants, they will out, so to speak, and they will wound other people. And so James here is speaking of disordered passions. Um, passions, desires, um, ultimately come from God. He's created the human heart. He's put eternity in the human heart. We are created with a set of longings and desires, but what James speaks about here are selfish ones, desires that are bent, that are disordered, that are out of proportion to each other. They're selfish appetites that prioritize self over others. They are anti-love postures of the heart by which we live and this is what the scriptures often call the flesh our sinful desires our destructive appetites this is the first of three enemies of the soul that we will address today saint augustine years ago said that the heart is in curvatus in sea uh, which means curved inward on itself the heart the desires curve in and devour and destroy itself there's a civil war going on within us as followers of jesus as people made new by the spirit of god there are still old appetites there are unredeemed desires within us old selfish muscle memories that we have to see move to a new place of of healing um, because they tear us apart and they wound other people So this idea of the enemy of the flesh uh, runs throughout the scriptures. Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11, he tells the church this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as 
as travelers in this world, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter, James, Paul, as we're going to see here in a second, they are not against the body. The body is good. They're not saying this flesh is just wicked and evil in and of itself, but it's the distortion of this good stuff that God has given us that is a huge problem. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, by the way, these are all books in the New Testament, letters written to the church. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh, there's that phrase again, the flesh, not just like our physical body. The flesh is something different than, than our physical body. It's, it has to do with it, but it's more than the, the good substance, the flesh, the bone, the muscle that God has given us as a gift. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law, you're not under that, that old nature, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he goes on to list some of these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the bent up and twisted passions that have self at the dark center. These things, untwisted, go back to um, how we are to enjoy this world and enjoy each other and enjoy God, but they are twisted and bent and broken and they are curved towards self rather than upward and outward to God and other people. We strive, we grasp, we clamor, and we hurt others to get what we want. Now ultimately, ultimately we hurt other people because we don't, trust God to order our hearts and, and our passion. So um, if we look at verse 2 and verse 3 again, he talks about prayer here. He's not jumping topic. He's just continuing to explore the, the issues at hand. He says that they do not have because they don't ask God. In other words, they're, they're not praying. They're not praying. They are not in union with, with their father. They, they are not turning to him in prayer, talking to him throughout their days, right? They are basically functional atheists. They're not talking to God first and, and most about everything. They are trying to do this life on their own and get what they want on their own strengths rather than saying, Lord, Abba, Father, I need you. Would you help me? So not only does he say they, they don't get because they don't ask, often our children want something but they don't ask, well then they don't get it, right? But sometimes they do ask, but the problem is how they ask or why they ask. So he goes on to say, sometimes you, go, you all don't receive because you ask wrongly. And he's not talking here about like, you didn't say your prayer right, you didn't use the right liturgy, you didn't use the King James Version, you didn't do whatever, right? That's not what he's saying, He's saying they ask wrongly because of the motivations of their heart. They ask selfishly for things. They are praying selfishly. And the Lord knows that what they're asking for will further increase their self-bent and will be damaging to themselves and others. So God says no precisely because he loves them because they ask wrongly. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my kids, uh, out of some deep craving and unrestrained desire, have asked for something, 
and out of the, the parental wisdom that, that I have, I say no. Love will say no sometimes, and love will say yes sometimes. So James says, you're either not asking the Lord and not trusting him, and so you don't get these things that you want. Or you're asking, and you're asking wrongly, because you're basically asking the Lord to partner with you in crime. You're asking the Lord to enter into your sin and give you the things that you want selfishly, Never mind the person to your left or right, the community at large, your children, your spouse, your friends. Never mind them. You're asking the Lord to give you what you want, even though it's not healthy for your own soul or for anybody else. Prayer is not an instrument by which we indulge our selfish desires. Prayer is an instrument by which we put our old man to death and bow in trust before our Abba Father who loves us. It's communion with the loving Father, talking first and most to God about everything. This is one of our seven practices of apprenticeship that we talk about here often. Our first one is scripture meditation. Our second one is unceasing prayer. That means going to God, talking to him, speaking to him throughout the entirety of our day, living as though he is really here with us. Now, quick note, by the way, um, if you can't diagnose your inner desires, um, because they are often uh, mysterious and elusive. Um, one of the ways that you can diagnose them is by looking at your prayer life. One, by what is it that you're praying for? Even if they're just short breath prayers, maybe it's just a quick I want statement. Um, but the other is, what are you unwilling to bring to God in prayer? Because you know it's a weird thing to pray about, um, or you don't want to trust God with it. What are you unwilling to bring to him in prayer? It's kind of like dashboard lights. Um, on your soul that might help you diagnose what's going on all right we need to keep moving forward james keeps on plying his surgical blade look at verses four and five he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world that's the world cosmos do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god or do you suppose It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James calls out another enemy of our soul here. First he called out the flesh, right? Those selfish desires and destructive appetites that are part of our sinful nature. Now he calls out the world, He doesn't here mean creation, the the solar system, the sky, the ground, the hills, the trees. But the broken systems of an anti-God life. The sinful systems and ideologies that ruin this world. It's our cultural and social practices that are opposed to God. That's what he means when he says the world cosmos here. It doesn't mean just the created order. It means the distortion of the created order that happens systemically and within individuals. And then it's just the cycle. And we live in that. And the external pressures push on us. That's the world. Uh, As Gary Brashears, one of my um, professors, one of my theological mentors says, he says, the world is Satan's domain where his authorities and values reign. Though his deception makes it hard for us to realize it. The world tells us to follow our hearts, right? To throw off all authority, to live a life of radical me-ness. 
to express ourselves at all costs because that's where true satisfaction happens. That's where meaning can be made is, is figuring out who you are and then expressing yourself to the world and getting feedback and validation that you are worth something. You are worth something. The world says that we have to be the makers of our, our meaning, that we have to designate and make our own significance, our, our own purpose that we are our own and that the heart our heart is really the only authority trustworthy enough to follow we can't trust people out there we can't trust institutions we can't trust politicians we can't trust poets we can't trust pastors we can't trust parents i need to follow my heart this is the authority that that will not lead me astray we are the judge of things we're the judge of things. But you cannot be devoted to Jesus and live these things out and follow these ways of life. James calls it adultery. He says, you adulterous people. See, he's drawing on the, the tradition of the prophets here. The prophets constantly talked about this idea of, of marriage, union between God and man, and adultery being um, this uh, idolatry, not trusting God. And so he says, you're, you're being adulterous to God. You, you say you're followers of Christ. You say, you say you love him. But you're being formed by the world, its systems and its ideologies and its practices and its liturgies all day long. And if you live this way, well, you're being adulterous. You're, you're cheating on your spouse. Like a spouse, this God is jealous of our love for him. A jealousy is not, not some bad thing. God is jealous uh, for his people. He's not envious. Envy is to want what's not yours. Jealous is to want what is rightfully yours. There is nothing wrong or dark in, in the Lord at all. And he is jealous for his people because we are rightfully his. Doubly so. He created us. He redeemed us. And he's sustaining us. We're, we're rightfully his. So he's jealous for us. He desires our hearts. He desires that we'd be in union with him. That we would walk and step with his spirit. Walk faithfully. Listen to him. Follow his lead. And so here's the flip. Our, our broken desires turn us away from him. Our disordered desires push him away and damage other people. But James flips that and says, his holy desires are for you. That you would live with him. You would abide with him. And he's put his spirit in you. So that your desires can be reordered, that your passions can line up with his passions, holy passions. He yearns for that. It's his great desire. So with that said, James then calls the people to action after expressing the heart of God here. In verse 7 through 12, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Now, as I read this, Look for these verbs. Look for these calls to action. Look for these imperatives or commands. There's a number of them in here. Because he's telling the people to, to live this way. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, that's the idea of lamenting, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
There's another one. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he goes on to explain that some more, as we already read. So look at all these, all these verbs, these commands, call to action. Here's a list of them, so we can kind of see them drawn out a little bit. That helped me to do that. Hopefully that helps you. Um, these are our call to action, our call to war. Righteously war against the enemies of our soul. He starts with submit. Just listen to God. Trust him. Count his word greater than your own opinion. He's infinitely smarter than you. He created you. He's infinitely more loving than you. He has your good in mind. Listen to him. Trust him. Trust him, bow to him, but stand, resist, stand against, resist the devil. You need to know that there's an enemy. There's an enemy who feeds you lies, who wants to destroy your life. And this is the third enemy of the soul that we see here in our passage today. The devil, the Satan, the diabolos, the one who throws a monkey wrench into everything, the accuser, the one who wants to destroy so now let's, let's look at these three enemies kind of all wrapped up together here. Let's get them before our eyes so we would know our enemy. The flesh, our sinful desires and our destructive appetites, the enemy within. It's in our muscle memory, it's in our thoughts, it's in our histories, our family of origin, it's in our actions, it's in our hearts. The world, the anti-God cultural systems, the social practices and ideologies that are constantly working to deform us, to shape us into the broken image of the father of lies rather than the father of truth, God. And then last, the devil, a real spiritual being. Not just some force, not just a metaphor, but a real spiritual being at enmity with God and humanity, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. As Peter says, he is like a lion prowling around, wanting to devour you, to bring entropy and disorder into everything that exists, to throw his fist up into the sky at the God who created him. So here we have internal and external and personal spiritual enemies that are working against us. And to fight the battle that we need to fight in this world, we need to know all three enemies. And I cannot tell you how often, when we don't see all three enemies at play, how often then we, we just focus on one enemy and then actually cause a ton of damage while the other two enemies are, are devouring our souls. Take this into the political realm. You go far left, you're going to pick one of these enemies. The problem is always out there. It's always systemic. Let's fix it out there. And you go to the far right, and you go into more conservative realms, and the problem is always internal. If we can just get the soul fixed, then we would be fine. But the, both of them often deny the reality of the devil. And we're not called just to pick one or another one of these to, to fight back against, because we'll be just destroyed at the flanks by the other two. All three of these enemies are about every day. And the way of Jesus is different than what uh, the, the partisan politics puts forward as the solution. They're different than what other religions put forward as, as the solution and the enemies, right? And so we are called as apprentices of Jesus to know 
our enemy. And the enemy is, is way more inside than we would often like because it is so easy to otherize and say the enemy is out there. The enemy is inside and there is a spiritual battle going on and there is somebody out there who wants to see you destroyed and to see God's image marred and maimed in this world. So those are the three enemies. Now on with the call to action and to war. Draw near. Draw near. That means abide with him. Abide with God. Pray. Read his word. Give your attentions to him. Tune your, yourself to who he is, what he's doing. Cleanse your hands. This is get your habits right. Get your actions good. Obey with the bodies that God has given you as gifts. Purify your heart. This is calling out your motives, renewing your minds. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by looking at that which is good and beautiful and true. We are to lament. He hits this one a few different ways. But this is basically saying, look, know that you have been wrong. Take sin seriously. Grieve it. Lament it. Don't be flippant with sin. That's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your need. Assess yourself soberly. Know that you are a dependent creature. That you are not the creator. Acknowledge God's goodness and sovereignty. He is God. We are not. We need him. And then he says, don't speak evil. Stop condemning each other. Don't take God's place to be the judge of another human being. The gavel doesn't belong in your hand. You can trust the Lord with judgment. That's a list, right? Um, it's a good list. It's a good list to make war on the enemies of the soul, those three enemies. But honestly, when I look at that list, I get bummed. Like, that is way above my pay grade. I am way in over my head on this thing. I mean, so often, pride motivates me, and I don't even sense it. I need a friend, a coworker to call me out. So often, judgmentalism rises in me, Right? And I can barely keep quiet. You know, can you, believe, can you believe he said this or that about masks? Can you believe she said this or that about vaccines? Can you believe he said this about that party, about this president? Can you, like, those things, they just rise. And sometimes I don't feel like my sin's a big deal. I just don't feel like it's a big deal sometimes. Like I, I shrug when I should be grieving. I, I, I laugh it off when I should be lamenting because there are insensitive parts of my heart. So often I waste time and I don't draw near to the only one who will satisfy my soul. I am drawn like a, a stupid little moth to what, the shine and shimmer of the distractions of this world that are just being fed to me all day long. So often I forget that we are in a spiritual war and, and I let my guard down and I listen to the hissing of these false, insidious narratives that say it's about me and so I clamor and I grasp at the things that I want and I often baptize those in religious language. I mean, this list, this call to action, this call to war against the enemies of the soul, it's daunting. And, and not to mention, remember, one of the three enemies of our own soul is 
our flesh, is myself. Like, how am I going to win that war? And where's our hope? Our hope, the great solution, is in the very heart of our passage, and I skipped over it. Just like we skip over it daily and don't attune ourselves to the truth of the grace of God. It's right here in the center of the passage. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says in Scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there it is, the beating heart of life. Right, sandwiched between the pathology and the problem of our desire-torn heart and our call to action to war against these enemies, right there is this glorious truth of God's desire to lavish us with love. The great hope that is grace, that God would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's more grace. As we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. He grants us the grace that we need. Our desires might be dysfunctional and deeply destructive, but praise God, there's more grace. Our callousness and our stubbornness might cause us to falter in coming near to him and to each other, but praise God, there's more grace. We might falter and we might revel And the devil's lies for a season rather than resist him. But praise God, there's more grace than there is power in those lies. We might lack discipline in our habits. We might let the flesh distract us time and time again. There's more grace to turn our eyes again to him. We might have a myriad of unhealthy, perverted thoughts and destructive philosophies and ideologies rioting about in our heads, ugly, twisted thoughts, our legion today, but there's more grace. Some weeks it seems my selfish desires are multiplying the more I try to crucify them. Then like a hydra, I cut off one head and there's three more, you know? There's more grace. There's more grace. Today's problems seem many. Turn on the news and it's just like the fractures just keep sprawling. There's more grace. There's more grace than fractures. The flesh, the world, the devil, the enemy seems so many. There's more grace. We need to get this in, in our heads and get it on our lips. Get used to saying it. Feel it on your tongue and your teeth. There's more grace. Say it aloud. Say yes. Say it together. There's more grace. There is more grace. It needs to get in our bones. We need to remind others of it. You need to come in here on certain Sundays and tell me, Heath, there's more grace. We need to call each other throughout the week. What if you text each other this week and it's three words, period? There's more grace because you know someone just lost their loved one. Because you know someone just got a diagnosis that they can't even process. Because you know there is a sadness wreaking havoc on their soul. 
they need to know there's more grace. And this abundant, profuse grace comes to us, not as some abstract power or some force, but relationally. It's a relational reality. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Who is that? Who has appeared? Jesus. The grace of God is Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not someday in the future. Now. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's zealous for us and zealous that we might love others well. His passion is that we would have holy passions. How? How? By his grace. Jesus is the grace of God embodied, grace alive, grace living, grace breathing, grace enthroned, grace that has sought us out, grace that abides with us, that holds us secure. Jesus is the king of grace eternal. When the enemy says there's no hope, like he has told you this week, that you have screwed up beyond all measure, there is no way of digging yourself out of the dark hole that you have put yourself into, the truth remains. There's more grace and some of you have grown up thinking that you have to prove yourself to god you have to clean yourself up before you walk into those doors and with that thought stacked on top of this thought like there's no way i can dig myself out of this hole i'm too far gone you're not seeing that there's more grace than all the evils that you've committed like all all the evils that you can commit the entirety of your life are like a paper cup and his grace is the ocean. Your, your sins are thrown into that thing and they just dissolve completely, nowhere to be found. His grace is infinitely beyond the brokenness of your heart and of this world. So when you feel a craving in your body, an urge to do something wrong in your mind, when you feel the pull is too strong, what do you say? There's more grace. There's more grace than this legion of thoughts. There's more grace than these multiplying urges and desires. When the depression feels like an unbeatable giant, there's more grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. Romans 5.12, this truth is all throughout the scriptures. The more severe the need for grace, the greater the surplus of grace to heal. The more severe the need for grace, the greater the surplus of grace to heal. We need grace-shaped imaginations. We need grace-saturated mindsets to see the world this way. And so often we think grace is what saves us, and that's an act of grace, and then we move on from it. That is not how it works. The grace that saves us is the same grace that flows throughout our lives and sustains us and will bring us to the perfect end of our journey. And it's at this point that I think I should just pause real quick and step back and say, like, what in the world is this grace? Let's make it explicit. 
Grace is not just for the forgiveness of sinners. Grace is the daily air followers of Jesus breathe. Dallas Willard um, said something to this effect. He said that the Christian saints are those uh, who burn up grace daily like a 747 burns up jet fuel. It's what we run off of. It's what allows us to live and breathe and love. It's spiritual oxygen. Grace. Grace is God acting in one's life to do what one cannot or will not do on one's own. Grace is God acting in one's life to do what one cannot or will not do on one's own. It's divine help expressing divine love, and that is seen perfectly and embodied in Jesus Christ. There's more grace in Jesus Christ than all the sorrows, all the traumas, all the heartaches, all the suffering in this world put together and multiplied by a factor of ten. And, and with that, I, I want to I I confess something to you guys. I confessed it to my wife this week, to the pastoral team, and to the elders this week. Man, I have been just beat up by sadness lately. Anyone else? Just feeling sad? I, I mean, I could go on all day. I can give you a, a list. I feel like as a pastor in a, a congregation, my nervous system is extended to hundreds of people. Um, I mean, the deaths from cancer, the diagnoses from cancer. I mean, all the COVID stuff. Um, just personal losses. Uh, by, by God's grace, um, I'm doing a lot of soul excavation uh, w- with my counselor. I've been doing that over the last year, just looking back over my my family of origin, my history, my timeline, and I have so many ungrieved losses. And it's just kind of like all hitting at the same time. And I have friends moving. I'm just going to lay it all out there for you guys. <laughs> it hurts. It's sad. And it's... But... There is more grace than there are sorrows in my life. There is more grace than there are sadnesses. And I so needed this passage this week. I'm so thankful that I got to pray through it and and study through it and prepare this sermon because the Lord knew this week would be a collision of these things for me. And sadness was devouring me. And he said, Heath, there's more grace. There's more grace. It doesn't matter how many things are going to come your way. More things that might come up in your soul or might come at you from the world. There's more grace than anything that this world can throw at you. There's more grace than Jesus Christ. That gives me huge joy. It just fills me with hope. It doesn't make everything easy. But it fills me with great hope in Christ. Now, to, to come full circle, I want to come full circle and we'll close this. Um, Sun Zi has another quote in, in his book, The Art of War. Here's what he says. He says, if you know the enemy... And you know yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. If you know heaven and you know earth, you will make your victory complete. Mm. So close. He was like right there. He was right there, but he doesn't have it. Yeah, we need to know our enemy. Yeah, we need to know ourselves, the flesh, the world, the devil. There's no victory unless you know Jesus Christ. So let me twist this quote a little bit and make it right. 
Sorry, that sounds really arrogant. If you know the enemy and know yourself, if you know Jesus as the king of heaven and earth, you may make your victory complete. Your victory will not stand in doubt. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is all the evils in this world. For there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is all the wickedness and the ideologies of this world. For there's more grace in Jesus Christ than all the sorrows in this world. And there is more grace in Jesus Christ than all the heartaches that will surely come our way as we live out our days on earth. There is more grace. So in closing, do this with me if you're comfortable with it. Close your eyes for a moment. Just close them for a brief moment. Bring to mind that overwhelming something, that flood of pain. That impossible problem, that, that horde of hardship, the legion of enemies, whatever it is. Do you have those difficulties in mind? Is there something there? Here's the truth about those things. Depression, addiction, death, diagnoses, whatever it is. There's more grace than whatever that thing is. In Jesus, there's more grace than those things. Would you open your eyes and open your mouth with me one more time? Let's say it together. There's more grace. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, grace appearing in the flesh. I thank you, Lord, that your grace is an ocean unfathomably deep. And that we can come and swim in that grace no matter what has come our way. And I thank you now for this table that we come to. The table of grace that shows that you appeared in flesh, that your body was broken, your blood was spilled. That we might taste of eternal life and the sweetness of your grace, which just grows wider and deeper. So we come to this table now in great gratitude and confession. Amen.